Please be seated. Good evening. The book of Amos, chapter 3 this evening. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. In the first two chapters, as we were uh, together last time, there were these um, eight burdens that the Lord had uh, to declare uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and some of their surrounding uh, Gentile uh, nations. And now, as he uh, moves into this new section within the book of Amos, chapters 3 through 6, it's made up of three sermons or three words from the Lord through Amos, uh, now focusing entirely on the northern kingdom uh, of Judah. And one of the, the, the thing that lies at the core of the uh, uh, northern kingdom of Israel, rather, the thing that lies at the core of uh, their disobedience and their apostasy is that there was no, they possessed absolutely no fear of God at all. Uh, the surrounding nations to Israel and Judah, zero fear of God. Well, you might expect that. They didn't believe in the God of the Bible. They didn't believe in the God of the Jews. There's something entirely different for the Jewish people to find themselves in that place. They had no fear at all uh, of his judgment. But it's interesting that when he uh, begins to rebuke this uh, characteristic in their lives as a nation, that when he addresses the northern kingdom of Israel, he is not talking about the world. He is talking about Christians, so to speak. He is talking about his people in the Old Testament. Not only was there no fear of God among the Gentile populations of the world, but now there was no fear of God in the northern kingdom of Israel uh, as, uh, as well. And so uh, he uh, speaks to uh, the fear of the Lord here. What they didn't have, they ought to have had, and, uh, and calls them to return to it. I fear God. I love God. I know He loves me. I know He's with me. I know He's for me. But I fear Him. I respect Him. I respect His holiness. I respect who He is. And that doesn't make me perfect as a Christian. No Christian is perfect. But one thing that the fear of God does do in our life is it keeps us from settling down into a life of protracted sin and disobedience to God. And that's what the northern kingdom of Israel had settled into. So we all have our, our place, even as Christians, we're making our way to heaven, we're less than perfect, God convicts us of sin that we commit, we confess it to God as sin, ask for His forgiveness, receive that forgiveness, learn what we can from our failure there, and then we move forward. It's another thing entirely uh, to disregard all of that and then settle into a lifestyle of sin. And a lifestyle of sin in a child of God, one of the marks of uh, such a child of God is an absence of the fear of God. Uh, there is the loss of the idea that God will chasten me, that God will judge me for this uh, if I do not take Him up on His offer for repentance and 
uh, for forgiveness. And so these are the theme here of the three sermons that he uh, delivers against the northern kingdom. The three sermons are easy to identify. Uh, they uh, are the words that begin chapter 3 and then chapter 4 and then chapter 5. You might notice, uh, hear this word. And so uh, this was the beginning of each of the new words that God spoke to them. And so now we come into chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord declared through Amos, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, uh, You only have I known of all of the families of the earth, and therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. And so here we see a principle that goes all the way through the Scriptures, and that is that there is a responsibility that comes with privilege. God had chosen uh, the children of Israel to be His uh, special people uh, under the Old Covenant, to be representatives of Him in the world. He had delivered them out of uh, Egypt. They had a long history with Him. And so they were more responsible for their wickedness and their disobedience to God than the Philistines or the Ammonites or the Amorites or any of the other ites that are in the uh, found in the Bible. So there's the principle of with privilege comes greater responsibility. Jesus spoke of it when he talked about Chorazin and he talked about Capernaum. He told Capernaum in terms of all the miracles that he had worked in that city, if the miracles that I've done in this city had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. There was the privilege of them having the Messiah in their midst, the miracles that he had done. It was a tremendous spiritual uh, privilege that they just uh, frittered away. And so what can happen sometimes, and apparently happened to the children of Israel, is this idea of our, our spiritual privileges, and it can uh, be in the life of a Christian as well. Uh, I know God, I, I have His Word, and I have all of these privileges in my life. I have been raised in a so-called Christian nation and so forth. And, and we view that as uh, reasons uh, to play fast and loose with God's commandments rather than to realize that my privilege makes me more responsible to obey God's Word than those that have had less exposure uh, to God. And that was the attitude that the children of Israel uh, had. I think it's interesting to realize for us, I was, I was thinking about it today when looking at all of kind of the nations of the world, so I haven't like formula, formulated it all the way out, so I may be wrong on this, but as I think about all of the nations that will be of the world that will be uh, God will hold the most responsible at the end of the age uh, for privilege. Certainly Israel is number one. And uh, I mean, birth, birthing the Messiah, having the, the Jewish Scriptures and so forth. They, they are number one in that category. But I find it very hard to think about another nation that has had greater spiritual privilege than the United States of America, given uh, by virtue of uh, the, uh, the fact that the Constitution, Bill of Rights, all of these different things, the nation founded upon a biblical morality and a biblical uh, spirituality. You can look at the, the uh, nation that we live in and, and the chaos that is uh, going on before our eyes. What is it disintegrating? What it looks like is heading towards a, 
uh, a, a collapse for, in terms of what uh, it, it has been historically in terms of, of righteousness. And uh, Samuel Adams, our, our, our very uh, second president of the United States, said of the United States that this Constitution will only work with a moral people. If they cease to be a moral people, this Constitution will not be fit to govern them. So you throw away uh, a, a biblical morality, you throw away a biblical spirituality, then this government is not going to work for the simple fact that it offers way too many freedoms compared to other places. And, and, uh, and if those freedoms become more important to a population than pleasing God, now you're going to have a free-for-all. And, uh, and so the responsibility that we have to realize that uh, as a citizen of the United States of America as a, and as a Christian in this country, I will probably be held certainly as a pastor, but I'll be held to a higher standard than any Christian or anyone will be held to in nations that have never ever known a Christian revival in their history. China, uh, Russia, uh, North Korea, uh, Iran, these great enemies on kind of a physical level as, as we see them, but not even remotely having the kind of spiritual privilege that we have. And so there has to be that place where we realize that we don't compare ourselves among the other nations of the world. Our privileges have been far greater. We don't compare ourselves as Christians in this nation uh, right across the board to other Christians in other nations. Our privileges have been much greater, and so the responsibility is far greater. And God is reminding the northern kingdom uh, of Israel of that principle. And then in uh, chapter, uh, in, in uh, verse 3, he moves on, and basically he's going to, he speaks to them of the inevitability of their judgment that must come upon them now for their unwillingness to, uh, to repent. And so he communicates through a, a series of illustrations that you might expect from uh, a, a, a sheep herder, uh, a goat herder, or a fig picker like Amos was. And uh, he, he draws these illustrations from everyday life and, uh, and, and, and he establishes a, a, another principle of cause and effect. If there is a uh, if there is a cause, then it, it, the cause is always going to produce an ultimate effect. For instance, can two walk together unless they're agreed? Absolutely not. And so the cause uh, is being in agreement. The effect of that is the ability to walk together. Uh, will a, a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No, a lion roars in the forest because he's caught prey. Uh, the one is, is the uh, cause and effect. Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? The same idea is no. There's a cause and effect in life. Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no snare or trap set for it? Do you ever find a bird in a trap where a trap hasn't been set? So th there's a cause, the trap, and then the effect is the bird is, is trapped. Will a snare spring up from the earth if it's caught nothing uh, at all? And so uh, the cause and effect 
a trap snaps, it's because uh, it, it, not because there's nothing there, but because something's been caught. If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be uh, afraid? And this is the trumpet of an impending invasion, and so there is the cause, and then the effect is that the people will be afraid. And is there a calamity in a city? Uh, and if there is a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have uh, done it. And so the, the uh, judgment that is going to come upon them in the hands, uh, at the hands of the Assyrians is the effect of a cause. It's a judgment that is coming from God uh, uh, to, uh, to them. And so if God warns of coming judgment, then it means that judgment is uh, coming. The one will follow the other as sure as cause and effect follows in and everywhere else uh, uh, in life. And they should have known that uh, the judgment was coming uh, in verse 7 because God had repeatedly warned them through the prophets and here uh, even through Amos. Surely the Lord does nothing unless He reveals His secrets to His servants, the prophets. And so God, as we see continually in the Old Testament, He is not emotional in His judgments. He, uh, uh, he is not... Um, they're, they're measured. His judgments are measured. They're, they're careful. They're precise. And uh, always He warned and He warned literally for hundreds of years related to the northern kingdom of, of Israel, related to their sin, worn through uh, His prophets. And again, here is the cause and effect though, but it isn't having the effect. The prophets came and warned Israel of their sin, and, uh, and yet they refused to listen. A lion has roared, speaking of God, and who will not fear? Uh, that should be the effect of the cause. There is no fear of God, and the Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And so uh, Amos speaks of the fact that God is coming to them as a lion, um, and, uh, and any time you see a lion coming, not caged, uh, then uh, you're in trouble. And when God comes as a lion... Uh, then, uh, then what hope do we have in the face of a, the, the, you know, the king of beasts and in terms of a lion, how much less in terms of the king of kings and the lord of lords? And, and Amos gives this kind of autobiographical statement, the Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Uh, Paul said concerning the gospel, yea, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. The message uh, burned in his heart. And Amos, looking at, at God, looking at his word, looking at the condition of the people, though he was being threatened to, uh, to silence himself related to speaking of the judgment that was coming, he said, uh, uh, who can but prophesy in the light of what it is that God has said? And then God, in, in verse 9, He calls on uh, the Philistines, Ashdod. He says, proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, assemble on the mountains of Samaria, that's the northern kingdom of Israel, and see great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her for they do not know how uh, they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. And so God calls on these pagan nations, Egypt and 
and Philistia, the Philistines, to come and be a witness to the wickedness of Israel, to be appalled at their wickedness. At this point in time, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was out-Philistining the Philistines in terms of wickedness and sin, and the same thing uh, 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 went for Egypt. Not only was God shocked at the conduct and what was going on uh, in Israel, but uh, the Philistines and the Egyptians would be uh, as, uh, as well. And here he says, come and see the tumults in her midst, and, and here is what they would see, uh, the people, the poor, uh, the powerless being uh, oppressed, uh, a population they do not know uh, to do right, says the Lord. How does a group of, uh, of Jews come to that place where they do not know to do right, and yet a nation can reach that place? It's one thing for a nation, and, and Israel had reached this place. It's one thing to know what is right. It is one thing to know how to do what is right. It is a completely uh, different level of fallenness in terms of a nation when its population no longer knows uh, to do right. They don't know what right and wrong is anymore. A generation or two has uh, ceased to have a godly uh, heritage within that nation, and they don't even uh, know how to define right and wrong, let alone how to live uh, righteously, and then the Lord condemned the northern kingdom for storing up violence and robbery in their palaces. Speaking of the oppressiveness, uh, uh, the oppression of, uh, on the part of the powerful and the rich toward the poor and the powerless within uh, the culture, within the nation, uh, that here they were uh, talking about storing up violence and robbery. In other words, their houses were filled uh, with art, filled with furniture, filled with food, filled with everything that the heart could desire, but the wealth that they had accumulated in order to amass these things came on the back of the poor, came on the back of taxation, on the back of a corrupt court system, and that's how these people became uh, rich. And God confronts them with that. There's nothing wrong with uh, you know, as, as God would speak here, nothing wrong, and we'll see it a little bit later, with having a palace or having a second home. But there's something entirely wrong about having a palace or a second home when it's been built on the backs of, of the poor and of the innocent within, within the culture. Now, I know for me, I never, I never understood um, the… Uh, uh, I never understood Madoff. Uh, with that whole Ponzi scheme that, that he did, uh, and knowing that as he's just had built people out of billions and billions and billions of dollars, hard-earned money, and how could he enjoy a glass of champagne or enjoy a meal or enjoy any of his kind of palaces or, uh, or, or the art that filled these things, the furniture and all, knowing that he had gotten those off of the back of savings of other people that were now going to just disappear uh, into thin air. But there's a, there's a weird thing that can happen in people's minds that, uh, uh, that makes them uh, somehow not look at it uh, that way. I wouldn't be able to enjoy not one thing in my house, not one thing in my life if it was stolen, 
or if I had gained it by the oppression of another person, taking advantage of, of another uh, person. But this had become very common within, uh, and nobody even blinked at it anymore in the northern kingdom of Israel. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, uh, an adversary shall be all around the land, speaking of the coming Assyrian invasion. He shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces shall uh, be uh, plundered. Everything, the wealth, all of the wealth that they had gained uh, through their oppression and corrupt judicial system, all of it would be taken away uh, by the Assyrians. And, uh, and, and just kind of this, God couldn't restore it to the poor, restore it to the powerless, and so He did what He could do with the nation being in the place that it was. You stole it. Uh, from these people, I'm going to allow the Assyrians to steer, uh, steal it from you and uh, see how you like it. And thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or uh, a piece of an ear, that's a brave uh, 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 shepherd. And it must mean the shepherd is approaching this lion when the lion is very well fed and can't really take another bite. And so uh, the shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear of a sheep, so to speak. So shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed on the edge of a couch. And so God is saying that the nation, the wealth of the nation, the destruction that Assyria will bring to the northern kingdom, all that will be left of it will be like what a lion leaves of a, of a lamb by the time it's done with it, an ear here, uh, a leg there, but uh, virtually uh, consumed and, uh, and gone, a devastating destruction of the animal and of the land. And he talks about those who dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and on the edge of, of a couch. And a, a bed in those days, certainly a couch in those days, those were symbols of wealth. So he's talking to the wealthy who have gained uh, their wealth in this illegitimate means, and he tells them that when this happens, these Assyrians will find you crouched in a corner, on the corner of your uh, couch. You like to dish it out to everyone, and you don't like it when, when God does the same uh, thing to you, cowering uh, in fear as they would get a taste of their own medicine. Here in Testify... Uh, against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day I punish Israel uh, for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the uh, altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Now, you might remember that Bethel was one of the two cities uh, in, uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel where the two golden calves were found. And so they had an altar uh, to this great golden calf. And when they built the altars, they would build a horn, on, a, a, one horn on each of the corners uh, of the altar with the idea that somebody could run. Uh, they were guilty of some kind of sin or transgression. They could run then uh, to the temple, grab a hold of the horn of that altar, and receive uh, mercy from the golden calf or uh, the God. And God said, 
Um, uh, not only are, you, uh, are these calves going to be powerless to save you in any way, but I'm going to remove the, the, uh, the golden calves. I'm going to even remove uh, the horns of the altar. In other words, when this judgment is poured out, uh, there will be no opportunity of mercy from anyone, and certainly not from uh, their false gods. Their false gods were going to uh, disappoint them. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish. I mean, this tells you about uh, the displeasure of God and, and, and the wealth that they had, uh, the, uh, ordaining the, uh, the houses of, with ivory. It takes a lot of ivory to ordain, a, uh, uh, or, uh, uh, to adorn, rather, a, a house and uh, the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. And so this, this kind of uh, ugliness, uh, oftentimes the rich within a culture, there's a seduction about uh, money, and one of the things that money tries to tell us is that it's a sufficient um, security against anything that can go wrong uh, in the world. And uh, one of the reasons that money is never ever a, 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 an adequate source of uh, peace in life is because you can never get enough money or accumulate enough money against all of the things that could come against you in life and wipe out your money. That's why God is, only God is the source of peace in life because only He is greater than anything that can come uh, against us. And so there is that uh, concept that where people can look and say, well, the economy is this and the economy is that and this is going on and there's turmoil in the world, but, you know, I've got what my wealth is diversified. I've got a little bit of real estate, a little money in the bank, a little bit in Bitcoin. I'm kidding. And um, uh, uh, anyway, that's none of my business, but seriously. Um, and then a little bit over here in stocks and all. And so I'm diversified, I'm protected, and the whole culture will fall apart before the ramifications of a depression or a recession can ever reach me or any kind of a judgment at all. And God says this judgment is going to be so great uh, that uh, even the wealthiest and the most powerful will be unable uh, to protect themselves. And in fact, they will be uh, the primary uh, target of this judgment. And so he begins now uh, in chapter 4, again, hear this word, now a second uh, kind of prophetic message that's delivered to the northern kingdom. Hear this word, uh, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria. So here he's talking to the women of the northern kingdom of Israel. So you want to talk about fearlessness. Um, I don't know when's the last time you called a woman uh, a cow and lived to tell about it, uh, but that's exactly what he's doing. There's a method to his madness. These, these cows of Bashan were, they were very fat, they were very sleek, they were very prized. Uh, good marbled steaks would come out of uh, of, of, of this particular breed of cattle. And so he, he calls them here uh, cows of Bashan and in order to get their attention about how God sees them, how serious uh, their detrimental influence is among, uh, among the nation. And then having uh, uh, gotten their attention, he then confronts them with their sin 
who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring us wine and bring us uh, drink. And so here he denounces uh, the, the, the degradedness of womanhood uh, 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 and of wives within uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. As a man, I don't expect a lot from other men. I mean, I understand, I get what they're, they're doing, the lies, the deception, the hardness of heart, all of those kind of things. But it's always a sign that a nation is becoming ripe for judgment when its women become like its men. And, and here, oppressing the poor, uh, you know, uh, crushing the needy in order to get more things and more wealth and, and more stuff and saying to their husbands, uh, bring, us, uh, bring wine, let us drink. And the idea is they know full well where their husband's money is coming from. Uh, keep the wine coming, and I don't care uh, who you crush out there that's poor and powerless. I want more, 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 uh, and more of this. And so here they're wanting more wine uh, to get drunk on while half the population is, is trying to uh, stay fed. They're being oppressed by uh, the wealthy and the, and the power uh, brokers here. And so uh, he, he speaks to them, and it speaks to us uh, of the influence of women within a culture and the importance for women, no matter what men are doing by and large, for women to remain an influence for health and righteousness and justice within a culture. And the influence of women, and that influence has been lost in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's a terrible thing for any nation to lose. But here he speaks of them as being the wives of husbands. It speaks of the tremendous influence that women have uh, within the family and within uh, the marriage and for them to maintain a godly influence within those relationships, influence for God, and uh, no matter what the world or, or the rest of the culture is doing, even their husbands. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, behold, the days are coming uh, shall come upon you when he shall take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the broken walls, each one of you straight ahead of her, and you will be cast uh, into Harmon, says the Lord. When the Assyrians defeated people, and they would take uh, slaughter large numbers of people, but the people that they would then take captive. Um, they would put a ring through their bottom lip, and then they would run a rope through that ring, and everybody would be all tied together. Now, as you might imagine, that would garner them tremendous compliance on the part of the captives, because I've never had a ring through my bottom lip, let alone anybody pulling a rope on, on that ring. And, and so this was a way of, of controlling them. And, and taking them into captivity. In other words, here are these women as they're being uh, uh, chained together, so to speak, roped together, so to speak, in this way. And God is saying, you have treated the poor, uh, you have treated them uh, 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 like an animal would treat another human being. 
You, treat it, you have treated them in a way that an animal wouldn't treat another animal in that way. And when, when a person uh, treats uh, the poor and the powerless in the way that these women were doing, then they have become an animal themselves. And God says, I have a cure for that. I'll give you a taste of your own medicine and, uh, and have you be treated like an animal a- as a cure for your arrogance and your pride and see how you like it. And he speaks about each one of them going through broken walls in verse 3, each one straight ahead uh, of her and being cast into Harmon. The, the destruction of the city would be so great by the Assyrians that they wouldn't have to be funneled together through uh, various uh, small holes that had been uh, uh, breached the walls of, of Samaria. So much of the wall would be taken down, especially in the wealthy part of the city, that they could just come out of their homes and walk straight out through the wall. And why would there be so much destruction in the place where the wealthy people lived? Because that's where the wealth is. And the Assyrians weren't stupid. And no conquering people are stupid. A culture can reach a place where it has fallen down to such a low, low place that being wealthy, and especially being wealthy, on the, uh, on the back of injustice and unrighteousness will make you a target in this world and a special target in the way that the poor would not have been uh, in this judgment. And then God has uh, uh, Amos here uh, speak to uh, the people there in, in, uh, in the northern uh, kingdom uh, of Israel saying, come to Bethel and transgress. Again, Bethel was one of the two main sites of, uh, of the calf worship, the idolatry in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he said, by Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Gilgal was also a center for idolatry for the northern kingdom of Israel. And so God declared through Amos, come to Beth- Bethel and transgress. Uh, uh, come to worship this false god and sin. At Gilgal, multiply uh, your uh, transgressions. And so it would be uh, kind of like uh, having someone uh, uh, outside of a church and and then speaking to the church, uh, you know, come into church in sin. And, uh, or come into church and multiply uh, uh, transgression. And so God was confronting the religious hypocrisy in Bethel and in, in Gilgal. Apparently, uh, Amos speaks this at a time of a, a religious kind of festival that is going on. People are coming in, and, uh, and Amos adds his voice on the part of the Lord, yes, yes, come to Bethel and transgress. They thought they were coming to worship. And he, and, and he was letting him know that this wasn't worship. This was transgression uh, against the Lord uh, himself. And so it would be kind of like a priest outside uh, uh, calling on worships. Come, uh, instead of come into the sanctuary to worship, come into the sanctuary to sin. You would look and go, what's wrong with that sanctuary? And that's the point that God wants to make here. Bring your sacrifices every morning 
your tithes three times a day. This was a part of their uh, worship of uh, the, the, uh, the, the golden calf, and they considered it to be the, their worship of this idol, this golden calf, that they were also worshiping the Lord in some way as a part of it as, as well. Uh, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free uh, will offerings. And so uh, all of their offerings, God says, is not going to change the judgment uh, that is going to come upon you because it's all offered in, uh, in violation of my word and my commandments. There's no worship that means anything to God if it isn't coming from a heart of worship. It's, it, it's, it's meaningless. It's like having someone, an enemy, give you a gift. You're not going to go put that on your mantle at home or in some prized place within the house. It would mock you. It would, it, it, you wouldn't want it anywhere around you. And it's the same, same way with God. And God says, for this you love, you children of Israel, uh, says the Lord God. And here he's rebuking the fact that the worship of these golden calves in the north, all of that was a made-up religion. And uh, it was a made-up religion that allowed people to worship themselves rather than worship God. Uh, the worship of self was at the core of the religious system that they put together, which is at the core of all religious systems that man puts together, and not the worship of the Lord. And the Lord wants them to know what you're doing there, though you throw my name in once in a while. Uh, that doesn't fool me at all, and it certainly isn't uh, pleasing to me at all either. And then God begins to uh, speak about the judgments that he had already begun to bring upon them because of their uh, refusal to repent. He said, also, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. So everybody got one of those Oral-B uh, automatic uh, toothbrush things, and dental hygiene was fabulous at that time in the northern kingdom of Israel. That's not what he's talking about. He says, your teeth are clean because of famine in the land. You don't have enough, uh, uh, enough to eat and a lack of bread in all of your places, yet you have not returned to me. God began to make uh, food sources and food itself scarce, but they wouldn't look and say, does this have anything to do with our rebellion against God? They had completely, even as those who identified with God, disconnected the physical kind of circumstances from their life, from the actual life that they were living. They'd abandoned the cause and effect, that there could be any cause and effect to the difficulty that was coming uh, into their lives. They weren't even open to it. God went on to talk about the drought that He had brought to them. I also withheld rain from you uh, and uh, when there were still three months to the harvest. You've got to have rain in those final three months of a harvest in Israel or you're going, to lose that, you're going to lose that crop. And I made it rain on one city and I withheld rain on another city. God said I would cause it to rain on one city in, in the northern kingdom where they were less evil than everyone else. I would withhold rain from the most wicked cities, but you couldn't put, you never were willing to put two plus two together. That it might be me that is judging you uh, through, through nature. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, uh, the part withered. And so two or three cities uh, wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. 
Now, I know uh, the United States of America and the state of California is not Israel. We do not have uh, that kind of a covenant with, uh, with uh, God. But it does make, you, uh, does make us realize that God can use natural resources to humble a people that are a special influence uh, for evil in the world. And uh, I always think about that when we have another winter. We don't have the rain that we need. And if we don't get rain this winter, uh, you may have very much what you've got going on right here, where the members of two or three cities traveling to another city in order to get a drink of water. You've got cities that are on, on the brink of not having uh, water. Not late summer next year, but at the beginning of spring if there isn't rain this year. And our state would deserve that kind of a humbling. We think that God... We're so wealthy with the, you know, the, and, and I don't think in, the, in these ways, but politicians do in this state. The pride is so terrible that it's just setting us up for uh, a, a disaster. Um, but, uh, but this whole, uh, we're the seventh largest economy in the world, and we're diversified, and we're all of this. All God has to do is shut off the water. That's all He has to do. And he'll humble the entire state. But I don't know that that would turn the light on uh, for, uh, for our leaders. Um, but there should be a recognition of a cause and effect. Uh, we certainly see it among God's people who are still alert to this, where you see in these drought years kind of the posters that will go up, pray for rain and, and so forth. They're seeing a potential cause and effect in in all of this. So, I always hesitate to say God is doing this or He's not doing this. I'm just saying what He can do uh, when, he's, when He's tired of what He's seeing. I blasted you with blight uh, and uh, mildew. When uh, your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them, and you have not still you have not uh, returned to me, says the Lord. And so they would bring in their crops. God would cause it to rain, or He would cause there to be dampness in the air that would then bring mildew to the crops and, um, uh, and locusts coming in to, to, uh, to destroy their crops. And still, uh, not, nobody saying, we ought to return to God. Uh, we ought to think about the fact that there may be defin definitions of right and wrong and good and bad and how we ought to live and conduct ourselves uh, because it looks like someone greater than us is control in control of the things that are going on around us in life and that he's in control of what we have no control over. For however impressed we may be about our own uh, capabilities, and I sent you a plague after the manner of Egypt, so disease came uh, uh, into the land. Your young men I have killed with a sword, military defeat that occurred along with your uh, captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, uh, the, the stench of death, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew uh, Sodom and uh, Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand uh, plucked from uh, the, uh, the burning, yet you have not returned, 
uh, to me. And so uh, he overthrew some of the cities like he overthrew uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Apparently they were completely destroyed, maybe by earthquake, maybe by uh, a military uh, siege. And then other cities uh, survived, but they were like a, a firebrand plucked out of the fire, but barely uh, surviving. A firebrand plucked out of the fire is if you put a, a stick into a fire and then you pull it out of the fire, and there's that burning uh, kind of ember at the, at the end of it, and it's only because it's been snatched by the fire from someone uh, that it was able to survive. And God was uh, probably these judgments falling upon these cities, some being delivered based upon the degree of idolatry and wickedness going on there, and, um, and still... Uh, the, uh, time and again, no cause and effect, no willingness to recognize that this could be God and, and we ought to seek Him and turn back to Him. And therefore, uh, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Ooh. I mean, it, 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 uh, Amos has laid... Uh, quite a foundation before he finally gets uh, to this place. If you think you've met God yet, northern kingdom of Israel, you don't know anything. You've just met his judgments. You've just met his chastenings. You've just seen his handiwork. You've just seen his attempts to bring you to repentance and back to me. You haven't even begun to take God on yet. But if you won't listen to the chastening and turn, then you want to take God on. That's the level of the arrogance, the level of the pride. And if you want to take God on, that's a battle that you can't win. Nobody can win that battle. If you want to take God on in that way, then prepare to meet your God. But nobody can win in that battle. I, I was always think about that uh, far side cartoon uh, when it uh, used to be in the newspapers. I hope he's enjoying his retirement. I'm not. But they had, uh, they had the Jeopardy game or something, and there was God. I mean, this might be, you know, sacrilegious, but there was God as one of the contestants, and then the other two, and God had all of the points, like, uh, you know, 50 billion points. And the, and the point was who can win against God? I mean, imagine a heavyweight boxing or, or cage fighting for you animals. Um, but a boxing ring where you've got this one contestant over here, and then in the other corner he gets introduced as God. That's who you're up against. You'd be crazy to get into the ring and, and, uh, and not give up immediately. And, uh, and yet they wouldn't. They're willing to take on uh, God and uh, God keep trying to tell them to turn, to turn, to turn, to turn, to turn, because this can only get worse. But without their repentance, it, uh, it was going to get worse. For behold, uh, he who forms the mountains, here's the description. You want to take on God, this is who you're taking on. He forms the mountains. Now, I don't know the last time you formed a mountain. Not talking about Play-Doh or a Lego set, but really formed a mountain talking about God's power. Well, none of us have done uh, that. Why would we take on someone who formed all of the mountains? 
and creates the wind. So again, talking about the fact that He's all-powerful, who declares to man what his thought is. He knows what we're thinking when we think it. He knows what we think before we can even think it. How are you going to take somebody on in battle when he knows your thoughts before you think them? That's a considerable advantage. That's better than getting, uh, you know, capturing someone and getting the, the battle plan ahead of the battle. I mean, you know everything about everyone. Talking about his omniscience. How do you take on a God who is all-powerful and, and all-knowing and hope to, um, uh, to survive? And yet, this is the level of self-deception that even God's people can find themselves in when they settle down into a protracted lifestyle uh, of, uh, of sin, absent of the fear of God. And uh, the one who makes the morning darkness, again, his, his authority over nature, who treads the high places of the earth, uh, the Lord God of hosts is his name. And so we'll stop there this evening, and we'll pick it up in chapter 5 uh, next time. And so this, this absence of, of the fear of the Lord that was present there. Now, he's going to go wonderfully in this final message that he gives to them, and um, he's going to call upon them over and over again, seek me and live, seek me and live, seek me and live. Even in this late hour, there's always hope in this condition of being uh, chastened by God, being uh, dealt with severely by God, if I will just turn from my sin and, and say, this has become a part of my life I recognize now that it's your hand in my life that is causing it to fall apart so that you don't have to judge me more seriously than you already have done. I turn from my sin and I come back to the relationship that you want with me as it's defined by the Scriptures. And then God receives us. It's a return from a backslide. And any of us can do that tonight if we're in a backslidden condition. And you don't have to be out there uh, doing some kind of whatever might be the grossest and the most violent and awful kind of sins that our, our culture uh, commits. The Bible talks about the backslider in heart being filled with his ways. There can be a backsliding in our heart that, we, that nobody else can see. It's not physically manifesting itself yet, but I know that I am living in disobedience to some portion of God's Word and His commandments. I've grown comfortable uh, in it. I'm good at hiding it, um, but, uh, but it will ultimately bring the, the strength of God's chastening and whatever measure is necessary in order to, to bring us uh, to, uh, to the end of it. And so to turn back to Him and, and uh, U-turns are allowed with God. In fact, they're strongly uh, encouraged. In, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 17, or verse 7 rather, the fear of the Lord, reverence, respect, a genuine uh, fear of God for who He is and what He is, His holiness, uh, is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. If a person doesn't fear God, then they really don't know anything truly important in life. They may know how to engineer a NASA rocket to get to the moon, but if they don't fear God, uh, uh, then they will not possess 
a spiritual and a moral knowledge in their life, which is the most important thing of all. They won't know how to navigate life. And so the absence of a fear of God in our lives is something that's very, very serious. So I'm not in any way trying to make any of this all heavy or anything like that or point fingers. I, I, um, uh, I, I, I don't do that, but I'm getting a name or two. Hold on a second. And that, and I'm getting row, I'm getting row numbers uh, here at, at, at the moment, but but to uh, uh, sincerely to look at it and look at my life this morning, uh, this evening, my life. You look at your life and to say, have I settled into a protracted area of willful disobedience to God that represents that I have lost the fear of God in my life? It is the only the beginning of the troubles within my life. And I will have no one else to blame but myself uh, for being in that place because it can be turned from uh, here tonight. Let's stand together now and we'll... Uh, no, no, re remain seated for a moment. I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in a, uh, a worship song before we close this evening. Father, we are in awe of You. We're in awe of Your love for us. We're in awe of your willingness to indwell us, indwell our lives. And Lord, we thank you so much for the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit within our lives as your people. We thank you for his work that is quick to convict us of our sin and bring us to repentance and quick to continue to convict us when our repentance is not so quick. We thank you for the life that we live, the fear that we have of you, the respect, the reverence, the quality of life, the purity of life, all of which we owe to your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the path of holiness. We thank you for the life of holiness. We thank you that when we, as we in this condition, prepare to meet you, to meet our Maker, to meet God, that it is not as a judge, not in, as a one who will chasten but as a loving Heavenly Father that is able to pour out the fullness of your blessings upon our lives. Thank you for your Father's heart toward each and every one of us, even in your great chastening and discipline within our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this evening and you are not born again, you are not a born-again Christian, never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and begun a relationship with God by uh, trusting in Him. There are going to be uh, pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. We'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God that you've been created for. If you need prayer for anything this evening, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Mike, would you close us?